Thank you for listening to The Leader. You can like, share, comment and subscribe through your podcast provider and get in touch on social media with the hashtag The Leader Podcast. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is The Leader. Hi, I'm David Marsland. With the outbreak gathering pace outside China, has coronavirus reached tipping point? Of all the cases, it's around 85-90% have been on mainland China, but it's really what happens next and where it happens. Our health editor Ross Lydell and consumer editor Jonathan Prynne analyse how the UK's fighting the infection and the impact it's already having. Also... The president gets very, very upset easily. So don't tell him that we're going to beat him here in Texas. After victory in Nevada, is Bernie Sanders now the Democrats' man to take on Donald Trump for the White House? We ask our US correspondent, David Gardner. And... I think she has done brilliantly. It's um, actually a bit unfair to say that um, it's too action-packed because the, the history is really happening at this point. Melanie McDonough's read the final part of Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light. Is it any good? Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is The Leader. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, coronavirus. What's happening and what could happen? 2024. Good luck. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A fifth person has died in Italy from coronavirus. South Korea reported a quadrupling of cases over the weekend. Billions have been wiped off stock markets around the world. Despite global prevention measures, COVID-19 is continuing to spread and cause damage to both health and the economy. In the UK, Downing Street insists the country is well prepared and the risk to individuals remains low. But for how long can Britain keep the bug at bay? Our editorial column has questions for the government. Italy has just sent in the police to seal off a town overnight. Is that the kind of action which could be taken here? 
Are our hospitals and GPs prepared? Could businesses cope? Could food supplies be kept moving and prisons and schools kept running? What about the impact on public transport? Would the government need to take new powers? In a democracy, these are surely the sort of things we need to discuss and prepare for now. On the one hand, officials and ministers don't want to spread panic. On the other hand, they have a duty to be clear about what might happen and make sure people are ready. We are fortunate to live in a country with an advanced, integrated healthcare system. We are able to cope, and we will. But this is the point where the government needs to move from getting ready behind the scenes to leading in public and spelling out the likely risks and consequences. If it doesn't, it may find that alarm spreads faster than the disease itself and cause even more harm. Our health editor, Ross Lydell, and consumer editor, Jonathan Prin are here. Ross, starting with you, as the case numbers grow and with this new outbreak in Italy, have we reached a tipping point for coronavirus? We may have reached a tipping point for it outside the UK, but not yet within the UK. I think it's fair to say the sense from speaking to UK experts this morning is that the containment strategy within the UK is going pretty well and we're not yet at the case where we need to panic. Uh, it's not quite sort of dad's army yet. Uh, we know basically where the infections have come from, which is a key point, and the numbers are not running out of control. But Jonathan, although the UK is not at panic stations yet, it is hitting places, it is hitting businesses, isn't it? Very much so. Um, very noticeable uh, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it started in, in, in Chinatown, inevitably, where which has been extremely quiet, more or less, since the, the outbreak first started hitting the headlines. But that now seems to be spreading into the wider West End, with a lot of restaurants reporting huge falls in, in numbers of uh, Asian, particularly Chinese visitors, who they very much rely on. Um, these days, they, they're, they're high-spending tourists, um, and they, they're not coming over. Ross, if the rest of the world is starting to see higher levels of contagion, is Britain kind of struggling against the tide then? Can we successfully hold it off, or is it inevitable that this is going to hit us hard? Well, the advice for some time now, and the, the warning, and also, the if you like, the mood music, both from Parliament and from Public Health England is, yes, it will get worse before it gets better. The hope is that the virus may be a bit like the flu virus and it may decline the closer we get to summer. Uh, So we don't really know yet. It would be unexpected if things don't get worse before they get better in the UK. But um, it seems that being an island state may help a little bit as well. What is the containment procedure? What do we have? What actions are being taken? So basically, if somebody has symptoms, then they're told to self-declare and to contact 111, NHS 111, and they, they will then be tested. And what happened over the weekend is that more ambulance trusts now across the UK are testing people at home. So this eliminates the need for patients to come anywhere near a hospital or a GP surgery and then those who are confirmed to have coronavirus are then isolated which has happened with the four new cases the people who were on the Diamond Princess cruise ship who came back with the party of 32 that landed on Saturday 
those people, all 32, are now in complete isolation from each other up in the Wirral. So basically, it's the sort of sensible strategy of preventing anybody who is infected from passing on the virus. The problem comes, and this is what's been seen in Italy and elsewhere, that people are passing on the virus without displaying any symptoms. Jonathan, speaking to your sources and contacts, do you get the feeling that people are confident that the containment procedures will be effective? I think they're hopeful, um, but with every day that's passing, they're getting more and more worried. Their nightmare scenario is that the Americans stop coming as well if they get a little bit freaked out by the scale of the outbreak globally and, and, and if it gets worse in the UK. I think that would be very, very tough for the West End. I think the West End will probably get through if it's just um, the Chinese for a number of months. But beyond that, it's it's pretty much uncharted territory. Ross, is there a danger that the panic becomes worse than the actual virus. There is that danger in that people overreact. And there has been a degree of criticism of the health authorities in the UK for not explaining more clearly that the virus isn't sort of out there like wildfire, that it's not being spread crazily, that the people who have it have caught it through some sort of link with with China, that it's not the case that if you pop down Sainsbury's and Chingford and you pick up a carrier bag that somebody before you may have touched, that you're going to contract it. That is not happening. So there perhaps needs to be a better explanation there. But I think the key point looking globally now is really where is affect which country is affected next. You know, there's concern that Iran, there's been up to potentially 14 deaths, possibly even more. And it's countries where the healthcare system is very poor that is causing major alarm. Obviously, there's the the uh, sort of situation with the ongoing disputes and war in Iran as well that makes it troublesome. If it gets to Africa or India as well, there's great concern there too. If it's contained within China, you know, it's worth saying that of all the cases, it's around 85, 90% have been on mainland China. So that's where the bulk of things are. And there may be positive signs today that the number of cases in Wuhan has slightly declined. But it's really what happens next and where it happens. Next. Don't tell anybody. I don't want to get them nervous. We're going to win the Democratic primary in Texas. A lot of people didn't expect Bernie Sanders to get this far in the Democratic primaries, but after Nevada, is it now his race to lose? Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. My friend, 
India's friend, the President of the United States of America, Mr. Donald Trump. U.S. President Donald Trump's been charming them in India with huge crowds cheering him at an address in Ahmedabad, even if he couldn't get the name of India's greatest ever cricketer, Sachin Tendulkar, right. This is the country where your people cheer on some of the world's greatest cricket players, from Suchin Tendulkar to Virat Kohli. Back home, crowds in Nevada have been cheering someone else's name. Bernie Sanders, who won the Democratic caucuses there to secure his position as the party's frontrunner to take on Mr Trump for the White House. There's a long way to go yet, though, and he'll have to charm a lot of sceptical voters in other states. Our US correspondent David Gardner's watching events. And David, it seems early, but some say Bernie Sanders has the nomination more or less wrapped up now. This is Bernie Sanders' race to lose now as you go into a crucial part of the campaign. Coming up on Tuesday is the next televised debate as we saw from last week with Michael Bloomberg's performance, that can be disastrous. One bad word, one bad performance can wreck a campaign. Soon after that, we have Super Tuesday on March 3rd, when 14 states vote in that one day. What comes out of that could prove to be the key to the nomination race. If Mr Sanders can do well in all these contests, you know, he could leave Super Tuesday as a runaway favourite rather than just a front-runner. David, why did he do so well in Nevada? Who's voting for him? He's doing well in a broad context at the moment. He's always had the young vote in the Democratic Party. Uh, that's what helped him to do so well against Hillary Clinton in 2016. People like Joe Biden have always claimed to have the minority vote, but Nevada and Bernie Sanders' crushing victory there showed that he does have a broad base now. Uh, perhaps he now controls that minority vote that he didn't really have much hold on last time. For instance, uh, South Carolina, a, a key vote now, uh, which has a big minority contingent. Bernie Sanders lost South Carolina by 40 percentage points in 2016. That you know, pretty much <laughs> was a huge blow to him then. If he could win or place well in South Carolina in the next state vote, that could put a lock on the nomination, particularly as the moderates are splitting their vote. There's a number of moderates in the race, Mr Bloomberg, Mr Biden, whereas Bernie Sanders seems to be out on his own as the left choice. Elizabeth Warren, uh, who for a while was with him, uh, has fallen back. Now it appears that Bernie Sanders has that left-wing vote, has the, the left side of the party following him. That could push him all the way to the nomination. And Bernie Sanders' victory was covered in our audio news bulletins, which you can get through your smart speaker. Just ask for the news from the Evening Standard. Now. Has Hilary Mantel concluded her Thomas Cromwell trilogy with a masterpiece? The Mirror and the Light is out next week, but the Evening Standard's Melanie McDonough's torn through a review copy and joins me now. Melanie, does this one meet that incredible standard she set with Wolf Hall and bring up the bodies? I think she has done brilliantly. The first two um, involved fairly discreet events and that um, the first one was revolved around the rise of Wolsey and then the fall of Wolsey. We've got in the second volume, Anne Boleyn, 
and um, her execution. And the events of the third volume are Anne Boleyn to the execution of Cromwell himself. And an awful happens um, in that space of time, and she packs it all in. Uh, it's um, actually a bit unfair to say that um, it's too action-packed because the, the history is really happening at this point. So uh, really, uh, she's got an awful lot of English history um, in 875 pages. There is a lot. And, you know, every story, regardless of whether it's split into three books or not, the third act is always the fast one. Does it move more quickly? It's quite a... There's a lot of pages in there. Yes, uh, she does give a dramatis personae, the kind of list of characters at the front, and people who aren't really very familiar with the history will perhaps be sort of flitting backwards and forwards. But I think that some of the characters that she depicts are so uh, vivid that um, she carries you with her as she describes them and their reactions to things. I mean, Henry is a constant, and Henry really does um, flesh out this particular narrative. The title, The Mirror and the Light, refers to Henry as the mirror and the light of all princes in Christendom. Taken as a whole, this trilogy, how big an accomplishment is this? It's a formidable accomplishment. She's taken a man who I think is the biggest bastard in English history, apart from his great nephew, Oliver Cromwell, and she's turned him into um, (laughs) our idea of a Renaissance man, an attractive, multifaceted, infinitely capable um, individual. Uh, Plainly, she's rather in love with him herself. And in in life, he was indeed um, ruthless, bloodthirsty, avaricious, infinitely ambitious, and utterly uh, without compunction in serving the king. Uh, But she has given him the only sympathetic motivation that he might have possessed for his um, ruthlessness, that is to say, loyalty to the memory of Cardinal Wolsey, his first master. But for the rest, um, the obvious um, take on him is that um, it was avarice that was his great motivation. It is interesting, actually, because this version of Cromwell is the one that will exist in the popular conscience. That's the danger. This is a real fiction, danger, isn't it? Because so few people now know any history. Now, um, she's utterly convincing in her take on this period. And, um, for instance, she's traduced the memory of Thomas More, who was the great English humanist, I mean, one of the great humanists of, of Europe. And um, she's turned him into a mean-spirited little man, uh, vindictive and cruel. And, in fact, this is utterly traduced to introduce um, the scale of his achievements and the nature of the man as recounted by his contemporaries. She's um, horrible about the uh, rebels in the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was actually a popular uprising. I mean, right up there, I suppose, with um, 1848. It's um, a genuine popular uprising by people who are sick to death of what Cromwell was doing, sick to death of what was being done in terms of popular religion and the Reformation, and who rose up um, and forced their leaders to lead them. So for somebody who puts herself on the side of the common man, um, she does actually have a very odd take on the one genuine popular uprising of this period. Cromwell would have loved this, wouldn't he? Yes, I mean, um, if Cromwell were um, <laughs> uh, from wherever he is now, um, reading Hilary Mantel, um, he would be, uh, I think, uh, rather gratified. <laughs> you can read Melanie's full review in the Evening Standard or online at standard.co.uk. And that's the leader. Please subscribe through your podcast provider. We're back tomorrow at four.